Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Greetings everybody and welcome to this episode of the Stargate Archives. This week we are going to be looking at the Stargate SG-1 episode Fire and Water with a new... Mm, that's a thought. This is the first time you've been on the Archives, isn't it, Ian? It is. It's my first time on Stargate Archives. Yes. Yeah. Many a Gatecast episode, but not a single Stargate Archives episode yet. Yeah, so as you were saying, you're not totally familiar with this format, but then again, this is a very casual podcast. You don't have any release schedules or timetables, I just do it for fun. <laughs> That's good, I like it. It's a good format, it's been working quite nicely. Quick update on uh, your good self, you're married now. I am, yeah. Laura and I got married in June, and things went mostly without a hitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got married at a stone circle, and had a great little ceremony, then went and had a very relaxed reception after that. Yeah, and I took Laura's name, so I'm Ian Nebbiolo now. But because you can't spell it, I'm Mr. Nebby on Twitter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, pretty much the same as it was. It was our 10th anniversary when we got married. We'd been living together for 10 years before that, so not really much different. But Yeah, you're just making it yeah. official, aren't you? Yeah, exactly, that's it. Makes for easier paperwork going forward. Right, we'll jump straight into this episode then. Fire and Water, a story by Brad Wright and Catherine Powers. Written by Catherine Powers and directed by Alan Eastman. Premiered October the 17th, 1997. It opens up on Cheyenne Mountain, then quickly zooms into one of the officers. Walter's there, making a point that Gary Jones seems to be appearing in Season 1 quite a lot. <laughs> More so than I, I could recall. He's got the specifics for a mission for SG-4. And then we get an off-world activation. Unexpected by the sounds of it. Yeah. This episode, by the way, as soon as you mentioned the title of the episode, popped straight into my head. It must have been one of those episodes that was repeated a lot on Channel 4 when Stargate <laughs> first had it. Oh, when Stargate was first on Channel 4. It's funny, isn't it? Whenever you tune in, it always seems to be the same episode. Yeah, I know, exactly. I remembered this episode with, uh, I'm not sure, I think a sort of dread. But when I watched the episode back, it was good. I actually didn't find it too bad. But <laughs> not one of my favourite episodes of Stargate, but I remembered it. So I guess that's a thing, right? Oh, yeah. Too right, yeah. Right, we're in the gate room. Everybody's fully armed. They've got the, uh, not the Marines, the Airmen's, all uh, M4'd up. Big guns are pointing at the gate. And SG-1 appear. Well, three members of SG-1. Strangely enough, the very fact that the missing somebody doesn't get brought up straight away. Doesn't get brought up until the end of the scene. No, the fact that they're soaking wet seems to be the first thing that you notice. Yeah, it's almost as if, get these people some towels. And Hang on a minute. One, two, three... <laughs> One of you are missing. The civilian's missing. Good God, lawsuit. <laughs> this is paperwork up to date. Yeah, they all look pretty distraught as well. And uh, shaken up. Which is, which is odd. Yeah, you think you know exactly what's going on, but obviously if Daniel's dead, then yeah, that makes sense. Jack delivers that line like an experienced leader as well. Like someone who's come to terms with it already in a military fashion. Yeah. He set his feelings aside whilst the mission's ongoing accepted what has happened, got on with the job, got back, and it's only after that that, you know, the feelings hit him. Before that, he just delivers that line. He's just like, Daniel's dead, sir. Yeah, I thought that was quite good. Right, we get the credits, and uh, then into the infirmary. Dr. Frazier, going on about the biohazard and contamination, 
actually nice to see uh, Stargate Command actually taking into account the threat posed by alien environments. They don't always do that. <laughs> no, I think they uh, I think they stopped worrying about that after a while. Yeah. Then... And how young does Terra Robbery look? She does, does she? <laughs> she really does, especially with that hairstyle. Yeah. And we get a scene with Sam and Janet. Sam is talking about Daniel being engulfed in fire. Tilk and Jack are the other side of the infirmary. Tilk is almost violently objecting to having his blood taken. I'm surprised we didn't get kind of a throwback to the Mr. Tilk. <laughs> that would have been appropriate sort of humour to kind of calm Tilk down a bit. I'd forgotten about Mr. Tilk. That was excellent. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did not look amused by the prospect of having his blood taken. Yeah, again, you might say an overreaction. Yeah. And... um Excellent acting from Amanda Tapping, by the way. I think the ability to emote to that level on command is, is what makes an actor an actor. Yeah. It don't have to be hysterics. Really picking up. In fact, if all you can do is hysterics, then you're probably not really that good an actor. Yeah, or you're overacting, yeah. Shatner level acting. <laughs> Jack is a little bit calmer, but for some reason he seems to be photosensitive. I was surprised that Janet dropped. Surely she'd know if he was that way inclined anyway. Otherwise, it's a symptom of something. Yeah. I got an inkling from her at the point at which she was with Jack. I got an inkling that she put it together that all three of them were behaving abnormally. What? And then she didn't tell anybody. If I was reading more into that. Sorry? Then she didn't tell anybody. No, exactly. But she's got a sort of puzzled look on her face in the scene. Like she's curious about why they're behaving that way. Well, she's a military doctor. She's probably treated the survivors of combat missions where there have been casualties. Yeah. And you think, well... This is extreme, to say the least. These people haven't been together that long. They've been through all sorts of hells in the brief time, but I suppose bonds could form that quickly, but maybe to not this extent. Yeah, especially from Teal'c, who's supposed to be slightly more um, emotionless. Yeah, a bit more stoic than everybody else. Yeah, stoic's definitely the word, isn't it? Right, we're in the reefing room. They went to uninhabited planet. Volcanic fissures along the shoreline seem to be some sort of large body of water. Daniel was inspecting one of these fissures um, when a fireball erupted and engulfed him, continued to expand. The rest of SG-1 only save themselves by jumping and submerging themselves in the sea. Sounds kosher. Yeah, and what was a pretty horrifying death scene, by the way, for uh, the first season of Stargate that I always remember being a bit sort of soft and jolly, <laughs> I guess. To be fair, they didn't they didn't show any details. A lot of it was implied. You had to you know look read more into it than was actually there. But it was if you invest in the stories, then it was there. It, you felt it. That's it. The real terror was in their reactions to it, not in the actual scene, which I guess is another testament to their good acting. Yeah, and then we get a rather feminine no from Jack when the general says, "Well, we've got to go back and retrieve his body." Yeah, this reminded me a lot of, um, well, this whole episode reminded me a lot of Ergo. Oh dear, go on. <laughs> Which is one of my favourite episodes, by the way. As much as Alan hates it, I love Ergo, I think it's a great episode. <laughs> His steering them away from going back to the planet constantly. That's the same sort of condition response they're giving, isn't it? Yes, it is. If he's got some time to react to his emotional outburst, he can come up with a logical reason to support it. Yeah, that's it. Because obviously the initial melt didn't detect anything that they thought was dangerous otherwise they would have been a lot more cautious yeah the next scene is janet and hammond uh, having a discussion janet obviously is uh, believing this is more a psychological issue you know, between the uh, the three uh, members of sg1 the general he just thinks they need to be put back on rotation you know 
jump back on the horse. Old school and new school thinking, if you will, in the military. Yeah, no, I, I quite like this scene. I thought it was good to give the two opinions because you can kind of see his point of view that the more they dwell on it and put it off, the more of a problem it's going to become. But Janet clearly sees that there's something more going on and want, <laughs> wants to put them on hold. Well, this is where she, yeah. she sets us all that. You know, I'm chief medical officer. As we all know, medical reasons, she can overrule the commanding officer of any base. Yeah. And funnily she enough, has. Yeah, funnily enough, though, we've often said that Hammond argues just because he enjoys arguing at times. <laughs> you know, he's, he's already made his mind up to help people, but then he'll argue against it for five minutes, then go, OK, then. Here, yep. Janet's saying, you know, give me a few days. And then he turns around, you've got a week. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought that was quite interesting. Just several days, at least seven days. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wow, that's pretty generous. It is, isn't it? I've been quite happy to give him that time. He was probably happy to see his chief medical officer with a backbone. <laughs> well, she got what she wanted. Yeah, I wish my timelines for budgets like that went like that at work. <laughs> yeah. How long do you think it'll take? Two weeks. You've got four. <laughs> yeah, don't let me down. Uh, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be ace. A shot to Cheyenne Mountain and then uh, into the gate room. We're having a, a full memorial service. All the colours are out. One of the interesting facts is most of the members of the military here are part of the uh, official delegation who do the flag folding at military funerals. Really? Yeah. I did wonder that when I was watching the scene back. It's very regimented, very well performed. Yeah. I know I can remember they were saying something like that in one of the commentaries. But this was long before, this episode was long before commentaries became standard with this, you know, the SG-1 DVDs. Yeah. This probably says more about the support of the Air Force and giving them F-16s. You can have our personnel, yeah. one of the most valued services our people can do. And it was interesting, the fact that at least one of them was a woman. Yeah. There's a really good mix, to be honest, yeah. in, the, in the whole group that's there. I wonder if that's a deliberate policy. Because, you know, they'll be burying all races, all creeds, all, sex, all sexes. So you, you want to make sure there's always a mixture. Yeah. And three yeah. of them were wearing glasses as well. I guess it depends what you're doing as well. You know, if you're going to be on the front lines or, or supporting or like engineers or something like that. It was interesting seeing the very small adjustments they made to the flag as they folded it. So yeah. it got down to that solid triangle, handed it over to Jack and then handed it over to Tilk. OK, Tilk, fair enough. The way they hand it over and the, the woman sort of pushes it into his arms. Yeah. Pity, really, that Daniel is alone in this world. Yeah. If anything, this is actually more more sort of authentic looking and regimented than some of the later series of Stargate, where you see things like this in the gate room. You know, they have funerals for people and things like that. And it's, it's actually slightly less sort of perfect and formal. Well, there was no bunting or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes they can't help themselves with bunting. Yeah, it looks very sort of rehearsed. Everything's perfect. And Airman plays the last post, and I do like the way they put the wreath on the uh, vent horizon, and it floated there for a few seconds. I know, that's really nice. Yeah. Well, I say that. Two things went through my head. One, that's a beautiful scene. And then two, why is it the Stargate convenience thing where it will stay open for as long as you need it to stay open, <laughs> or something, something will either get sucked in instantly and very dramatically, or it will take ages to drift through? Depending on, on what the plot pulls for. I was just wondering what planet they dialed. Did they dial that planet again to send the wreath through? I guess it sort of transitions through the puddle to the planet, right? So. Well, that's the effect we get, yeah. They don't think that at this point there's any alien life on the planet, so no harm in dialing it again. It's not as if the volcano's yeah. waiting for them. Of course, we get a view of an alien-looking room. Alien because it certainly doesn't look 
like a human lives here, but there is a human <laughs> there, and Daniel's there, and he's alive. Yay! Daniel's couldn't, not. Couldn't dead. bear it if we had to watch Daniel die. Oh no! People be turning <laughs> off in droves. Exactly. <laughs> also, I'd like to say how much this episode reminded me of the Outer Limits. I think it was maybe the set dressing for that world, that room especially. It reminded me of something from the Outer Limits or the Twilight Zone. I'm not sure why. I was thinking Stingray. Yeah, or Stingray. Yeah, that could work. <laughs> right, we go to Jack's home. Quite a view of it. It's actually quite a big piece of land he's got. Rather large back garden. First time we see it. Well, we see it in the Children of the Gods when he's up the, the ladder stargazing. Oh, yeah, so we do. Definitely the same room, though. I, I liked it. We're getting sort of tales from Abydos. <laughs> I'm thinking, I assume all these people have got security clearance. Is this just an excuse for all the members of the SGC to, you know, have a party? Nobody else is invited. Yeah. Because Daniel was alone. Hewitt's got his excellent hat. Oh, yes. Very Looking nice. like a Texan. I don't understand this. Well, it's a wake. It's a celebration. We fast for three days. I thought, okay, fair <laughs> enough. But given the casualty rate amongst Jafar in normal day-to-day routines, <laughs> they must be fasting an awful lot. Yeah, they rely on their symbiotes to keep them alive, otherwise they'd be starving to death. Yeah, because it's not, it's not as if they're ever at peace. It's a state of perpetual <laughs> cold war. I suppose you only fast if it's a member of your own, I don't know, Jafar platoon or something. Seems rather extreme. You know, he stays along when uh, Jack offers some beer. Sam, yeah, yeah, I'll have a beer. Phil, no. Of course, then he gets a can of beer, and I think, oh dear, Americans. <laughs> Aye, and there we get the... Um... Very cold. Yeah, well, that leads us to... Jack's little vision. Must mean something. Yeah. Nice little transition there. Back into the pits of fire. We meet an alien. I love his shoulder pads. <laughs> They're very 80s, right? I'm not <laughs> sure what look they were going for, but but somehow it seems to fit in with the decor of his uh, his dwelling. I, I think they look a bit prawn-like. Very ornate, very flashy. You know, look at me, kind of, I'm the big fish in this pond. Colours are a bit muted. That could be, you know, limitations in human eyesight, you know, to other amphibians. Maybe they look more extreme. Yeah, that's true. The alien looks at Daniel, points to the wall where a little slide moves over and there's some script. Daniel recognises it as a cumiform, one of the earliest writings known to mankind. And he's actually able to translate it. Yeah, also it's actually pronounced cuneiform. Is it? Fair enough. Yeah. He kept calling it cuneiform, but it's uh, I know, that's why cuneiform. I said cuneiform, because that's how I heard it. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked up on that if it wasn't for a Tom Scott video on YouTube that I saw about a year ago. And right. uh, it was very interesting, but when I watched this episode back, obviously, then I was like, oh, right, I know what that language is now. Yeah, Daniel comes up with Reveal Fate of Omaraka. Well, not of. Reveal Fate Omaraka. Yeah, I like that. This language does away with uh, with useless words, apparently. Daniel is confused. Fair enough, we all are at this moment. Uh, we jump back to Jack's house. He's out the back playing hockey. Seems to be burning off some excess energy. <laughs> it's not working. He's getting more and more wound up until he takes his hockey stick to the car. Yes, a scene I remembered very well. <laughs> Everybody remembers that scene. <laughs> the general comes comes around, starts talking Jack down, then points out, uh, that's my car. <laughs> the window's broke. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I know. I love that <laughs> little quip back. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you need to get that looked at. Yeah, the general's not going to make too much of a fuss about it. He's probably seen this reaction many a time, and he knows there are 
you know, men or women under his command that need to vent at some point. Perhaps yeah. the ones that kind of hold their emotions in check the strongest. Couldn't imagine General West letting him get away with that. No, I don't think so. He'd no. just give you that look <laughs> and you'd wilt. You would. Yeah, so the general offers him a job. Daniel has got an off-base home and he's cleaning up and he... Uh, Anything that uh, is in the house that shouldn't be in the house needs to be removed. Jack, of course, yep, I'll do it, no problem. He does say that, but that's uh, after he says that he's thinking of retiring again. Again, yep. Yeah, yeah. Jack and retirement are like Daniel and death. <laughs> Jack, you don't know it yet, but you're going to be around for a long time. Exactly. Yeah, you're not getting out of it that easy. Meanwhile, back on the alien planet, <laughs> more slides are being revealed. Daniel is busy trying to translate, not getting anywhere with the demand. And it is a demand. The alien is pretty much reveal fate Omar Arca, then walks away in a huff, presses a button and another button, food, bed, more threats. Yeah. And, and what is a tiny, tiny bed, by the way? Yeah, that doesn't look comfortable at all. It doesn't. It also looks about three quarters of the height of Daniel. So I'm not quite sure how he's going to fit in it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that the alien can speak English, though. Yeah, well, I'm wondering if he waited and was, like, learning Daniel's language, but then apparently didn't have a problem, or had a rather large problem translating the cuneiform. Then again, like you say, perhaps he needs to hear... Daniel himself said sometimes languages you need to hear him speak. When he was on Abydos, first time around, and when Shari actually pronounced some of the words for him, everything clicked. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Also, the language came to him rather quickly, but his explanation made a little bit of sense. We'll give him that. Yeah. Yeah, because he, he doesn't really talk to him. He just points around the room for a while before Dan's, uh, after Daniel's been speaking a fair bit. Right, we're in uh, Daniel's apartment. Actually, nice-looking apartment. If you're into shelves and books and stone fireplace as well. It's beautiful, isn't it? I think Daniel's getting paid rather well at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he must have made pretty good money translating with the symbols initially. Basically, that was, you know, I'm, I'm back from Abydos. You want to keep me quiet. I need somewhere nice to stay. I'm not staying on base. <laughs> Where can I keep all these books? All these journals and mission reports. And I'm thinking, why are they off base? Yeah, that was going through my head as well. If a general took a top secret document outside of a military base, it would be in a secure piece of baggage and he'd have a safe that was approved by the military for use for storage. It would not be sitting on a shelf. <laughs> He's got all his journals. I know. Granted, somebody broke in and read them thinking, oh, this guy's a novelist. He's pretty good. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure about the first-person perspective and everything, but we could go with it. One thing annoyed me. There was a picture on the shelf with a bloke on a camel, and I can't help but think that picture is actually James Spader. Really? I've got that in the back of my mind. At some point, I've read that picture was James Spader taken on the set of Stargate on a camel. That looked like James Spader, doesn't it? I looked on Wiki and I couldn't find it there. And I'm thinking, what books was I reading when we did first cover this on Gatecast? And I'm thinking, where's <laughs> my companion piece for season one? And I know it's in the house somewhere. And the cameraman hangs on it for a sec as well. Yeah, it's important. After Jack walks away from it. Yeah. Yeah, that's an Easter egg for something. I'm sure it's James Spader. That's excellent. Me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> and a fish tank. Daniel goes off world quite a bit. Yes. I hope he's got an automatic feeder. Yes. <laughs> a reliable one. Even McKay gave his cat away. Yeah. To the hot girl next door, but... <laughs> Maybe he gets water to come and feed them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, but this is where we get another flashback sequence, thanks to the air filtration bubbles. Damn this time. 
this is getting to be ringing alarm bells in in Jack's mind now and even Tilk. Tilk chimes in. Yeah, I've been having these same thoughts, although we don't actually see his. No, we don't. I guess they decided they wanted to rush that ahead a bit. Back on the alien world, we see this alien. We'll call him Nem, because that's his name, although we don't hear it for quite a while. Come through some sort of force shield that separates the ocean. A nice little effect. Got a feeling that the CGI algorithm for the water is being used on the Stargate Event Horizon as well. Pretty cool. thought it was interesting that he walked towards it instead of swimming towards it. I suppose after a point, you know, that you transition between living conditions and you'll fall flat on your face if you're not careful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At this point, we learn his, his focus, what he's looking for is information on Babylon 4,000 years ago. Daniel, who he believes is the learned one amongst the members of SG-1, which is the reason why he kind of kidnapped him, has the answers. Quite interesting. I would quite like to have found out more about this species because he obviously assumes that Daniel's old enough to have remembered all this stuff. Like Daniel says a little bit later, so much has happened on Earth since then. Vast libraries, histories lost to time, war, attrition. We don't even know with any accuracy what happened before the printed page. Mm -hmm. Tapestries and books that were written by or authorised by kings who had won battles to make themselves look good. It's all speculation. Yeah. All interpreted from drawings and stories. That to define told. what is truth, firstly an impossible task. Meanwhile, back in the sick bay, Janet has SG-1. She's identified a serotonin deficiency and a kind of a dark spot in the same centre of each of their brains. Before they go in any deeper, the alarms go off, incoming wormhole. Everybody rushes to the gate. Daniel! My God, Daniel's back. He's wet, but Daniel's back. And then, oh, that's not Daniel. Yeah, no, it's some really menacing-looking SG team. He does. He, he's probably looking at them thinking, why are they looking at me like that? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't even invite me to the memorial, bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a member of SG-6. They make themselves look a bit like idiots. But I think, it, again, it, it underlines to anybody that's looking in that something is wrong. All three of them chiming the same story. Because they say, we've got to go back, and that's when Jack screams and holds his head. Yep, like a lost reference there. <laughs> We go back to the yeah. alien planet. Daniel is optimistically trying to get out of the door, open the door. But I can't help but feel that if you do, <laughs> then what? <laughs> yeah, this is an ill thought through plan, I think. You don't really know how deep you are. You don't really know if you're close to the shore. You don't know what the water pressure out there is. Whether that force field is active all the time. <laughs> yeah. Also, we uh, we forgot that in, in the previous scene in this in this room, we found out who Omaraka is. Yeah, the alien guys meet. That's a relationship that took the test of time. 4,000 years later, he's still obsessed. Yeah. There are men out there that after 4,000 years might say, well, maybe she left me. Not enough to go out and explore to find out where she is, though. Well, once again, just like Ergo. Funnily enough, the missus, she, she was happy to go to all the planets and meet new people. Him, not so much. No, he's quite happy at home. He's got his fish dinners. He stayed back. I'll look after the kids, love, don't worry. <laughs> have a good time uh, give us a call when you get there yeah enjoy babylon <laughs> don't do anything i do <laughs> and if you do don't tell me about it i don't want to know daniel says give me something something more to work with than just babylon any people wherever mentioned any events and then he comes up with bellus somebody to be feared she went to earth to fight the world we're getting to see the picture omaraka went to earth to support humanity we don't see 
these creatures, these life forms, have any particular special abilities. They're amphibians, they can live on land or in water, but it's not as if they have telekinetic superpowers. They might be very intelligent, though, because they're... Well, maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. What are you going to build in the Babylonian era? I don't know, but this guy's like 4,000 years old, so... At least, yeah. So they must have seen a lot of stuff, which is weird. It doesn't really fit with the rest of his character profile, given you know everything else about all the other civilizations in uh, Stargate. That he's 4,000 years old and seems to just live in this little room. I wonder if this room were kind of, you know, developed for Daniel or of something of the like. Yeah. But what does he do with himself for all this time? What do humpbacks do? They swim around, play and eat and make new humpbacks. Yeah. They seem perfectly yeah, content. Yeah, maybe he's quite happy the fact that the, he's safe from the gold and they can't get to him. He's just waiting for his mate to return so uh, so they can hide together. Back in the briefing room, this Dr. McKenzie, played by Eric Schneider, first of the four appearances on the show. Uh, he's playing back ocean wave, the mood music, as he calls it. <laughs> Jack isn't impressed. Sam chimes in that hypnosis and other mind regression techniques are a valuable tool in getting past memory issues. Jack says that it's not working on him. And then the camera pans out to see Teal palms down <laughs> on the desk, daring intently. Is <laughs> brilliant. I know, it, that that was a very nice touch, that was. It really was. It was just his entire face, his whole body is just completely still. It's brilliant. Tilt really is a straight man. <laughs> he <Yeah>. really is. <laughs> you know, almost imagine Jack actually going up and snapping his fingers, waving his hands, you know, prodding <laughs> him and, and all sorts. If the story wasn't so critical, the events, if Daniel was around, it was some other reason they were doing this, and he probably would. It was a nice touch. It was. And uh, it was here that I realised, or remembered, quite how much gold shimmer they put on Christopher Judge in the first season. And pro well, probably uh, the next few seasons, I think. Yeah, especially the early ones, how much gold they put on him. Yes, he talked about that a lot in later commentaries, not commentaries, in uh, special features and whatnot. Yeah, and about being painted all the time. Yeah, he also said he spent a lot of the time in the briefing room asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe that. Again, back on the alien world... Talking about memories, this whole episode is focused on memories, what have been taken away, what are there but hidden. Daniel says, you know, if you think I've got these memories, why not take them? You know, use your machines, because if that's what you did to the rest of SG-1, you put fake memories into their brains. If that's the level of your technology, surely you can do the reverse. And I like the fact that Nem says, no, I can't do that. It could hurt you. It's dangerous. So, yeah. This guy isn't evil, he isn't bad, and he's not willing to risk the health of a, another sentient being just to satisfy his own curiosity, even if it's something that's driving him to the extreme. I thought it was that was quite interesting as well, because I wonder if he assumes that Daniel, like the gold, have like um, inherent memories of their ancestors, because he keeps saying about how the memories are in, in there. Yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? If there yeah. had been a gold alive back then and that had carried on through, that would have perfect recall of the events of that time yeah and he well and he keeps saying that to him he's like you remember it's in there and then it was obviously frustrated because he knows otherwise obviously nem must know though that he isn't uh, implanted yeah his technology seems to be advanced enough to be able to tell that yeah that's true right back in the brief from room we've got huge reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder we get the obvious time differences between the uh, time perceived by su one on the planet and how long they were actually gone this is when hypnosis, this is what we're going to do. Tilk quickly, strategically 
removes himself from the equation. Uh, I don't think it'll work <laughs> on me. Well done, mate. <laughs> and I'm not willing to try. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Sam, I'll do it. Uh, yeah. During my extensive education, undergraduate course, I had a site course. I've done this before. Yes, I had time for this in between learning how to fly fighters and my astrophysics courses. <laughs> Is this the scene where we find out that they were gone for four hours or was that the previous one? Yeah, this, yeah, was, this the was the scene. So at this point, we find out that SG-1 believed they were only there for half an hour. Turns out they were actually there for four hours. And it never gets brought up again about the weird shadowy lumps in their brains. Yeah, that just goes away, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, oh, there's this weird thing in all of your brains, but we won't worry about that. It seems weird that they go to hypnosis. That probably ended up on the cutting room floor. Well, that's a good point, actually. Maybe it did. Maybe something was originally shot and it was just cut for time. Right, Sam's trapped to, to be honest, not a very comfortable looking device. Not a cosy room at all, you know, not exactly a leather bound couch in a nice wood panelled psychologist's office. <laughs> this looks yeah. almost like a broom closet. Yeah, and there's some sort of power issue with the light. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wonder if this was a actual hypnosis technique, because I'd never seen that before. Or if it was just because it looked cool on uh, camera. Not knowing either way, I'd say, yeah, it looked cool on camera. Yeah. We see the beach, we see at least three planets in the sky, one of them huge, which makes you think that this is probably a moon rather than a planet itself. Did they actually mention the designation? If it starts with M, then it's a moon. If it starts with P, it's a planet. Ah. And we see SG-1 approach the beach. Almost instantaneously, we see disturbance in the water. Something is approaching them. Alien life form rises from the water, walks up the beach, looks at Daniel, looks at Tilk, holds its palm, web palm, to Tilk's stomach, senses a symbiote, writes something in the sand. Daniel recognises it. Cuneiform, yeah. Cuneiform. <laughs> Daniel writes something else. The creature <laughs> immediately zaps the three of them. Well, all of them. <laughs> yeah, it looks a lot like one of the gold hand devices as well, that attack. But it, he doesn't seem to have any technology on him. Yeah, interesting life form. Because you normally think anything that develops not just from the ocean, but develops in the ocean to a level of technology. You get the feeling that fire should be at the centre of all technology. How does that work if, you, you know, you live and do everything in the ocean? And I yeah. suppose amphibian, it could be 50-50, but we're not going to worry about that. Although one thing to say <laughs> that Nem looks better under the water than he does on dry land, because that's a wetsuit he's wearing. Yes, I know. Yeah, that was part of the thing that was making me think this was very Outer Limits and Twilight zone It looked very low-budget sort of effect, some of these bits in the first series, especially compared to the later stuff. Yeah, but when you see him in his underwater dwelling, and especially when he's got more ornate outfit on, probably because they're not showing him from waist down, he looks fantastic. Yeah. He really does. Gerard Plunkett, who plays Nem, does a great job, considering you've got limited dialogue and... The delivery is very stylized. The makeup also on the head is actually amazing. Yeah. You look at it and you think, well, yeah, it's got the articulation there because it's kind of in two pieces. His, his lower jaw is free to move. Yeah. Whereas his upper part of his face is reasonably rigid. Very built up. And he's got those yeah. little tendril things coming down and pretty good. Well, at this point, they, they realize that they're in some tube-like device. Daniel's alive. We get the uh, the hero moment. We're going back. No pain this time, you know, psychological blocks have gone. Everything's a go. Meanwhile, Daniel's strapped into another fiendish-looking device. I think all medical devices yeah. look a bit risky unless you know exactly what they're for and what they're doing. Yes, it does, doesn't look fun, this. 
the alien again, you know, are you sure about this? You know, Daniel, yeah, I'm sure about it. What other option have I got? Okay, then. I know. The alien guy's just like, oh, yeah, I guess, well, I'm not going to let you go. So, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for volunteering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remember Amaroka, focus on that name. Daniel, as the energy kind of waves hit his brain, searching through all his memories, looking for little tidbits of information. He remembers Belos, he remembers Amaroka, walking among the people, going back to the oceans at night to rest, maybe kind of fermenting rebellion. Either way, at some point, Belos comes down from the skies and slaughters her. He doesn't say murders her, kills her. By the signs of it, he rips her apart. Yeah, what was the? I can't remember the word he said, but it was it was not good. Eviscerates her or something like that. Sundered her in two. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, Bellus sounds like a gold who had very firm opinions on people or other alien life forms invading his territory. Yeah. Also, he painted a really good picture. Like he, it was a really well executed little story in the few words that he used gave you the, an illustration of everything that could have happened and you can kind of fill in all the blanks from all the other things you know yeah i, w- I wonder from, uh, basically if amaroka were there more giving out medical help just giving hope to the people you know telling them that there are others out there this isn't the way you're supposed to live it may not last maybe the next generation maybe your children's children never give up always keep an eye out for an opportunity when it comes she must have been doing something that really annoyed bellos yeah. You know, if you just found an alien on his planet, then you'll probably take her for question and find out what was what, not just come down and smite her. She might have been having a, an effect. Yeah. It maybe alludes to, well, either, either alludes to the fact that they're really wise, powerful beings and that he wanted to just get rid of her or that they're meaningless to him and that he wouldn't take, wouldn't bother wasting his time by taking one as a prisoner. Ah, maybe. We see a lot of variance amongst the system lords. Some are willing to capture enemies, interrogate them, learn what they can, see if there's any positive for keeping them alive, see what they know. Others just kill. Yeah. There's a reason that Bol ended up being one of the last, the last. He was always looking for an edge. Yeah. Oh. If he went around killing everybody, he'd never got where he was. No, we saw that when he captured Jack. Yeah. (laughs) So SG-1 are on the planet. It's exceptionally good timing. The memory probe has finished. Daniel is actually able to walk into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, like a Stargate effect again here. Very definitely, won't it? Yeah, like a callback to the first time he touches the puddle in the film. Yeah. I quite like that. I'm guessing that was intentional. Fortunately, he was very close to shore. Yes, he was. I also noticed there was a second set of bubbles that led ahead of the alien in this. <laughs> you don't think it was a diver, do you? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> definitely not. First thing they asked the actor, how long can you hold your breath for? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they weren't there the first time. Daniel bursts out of the ocean like a like a whale. Yeah, the only thing that made it better is if he had much longer hair and was in a skimpy bathing suit. That's been a trope <laughs> of movies for years. Granted, it's normally a female that's doing it, but effect would have been the same. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that many uh, men and women... Well, women and men would appreciate the later buff Daniel Jackson coming out of the water like Daniel Craig. (laughs) Yes, quite right. This is where we get Daniel kind of filling everybody in. Nem's not a threat. Yeah, explaining that that they don't have to worry and that they can shoot and that he's fine and he's untouched and that they can go home safe. 
And uh, yes, yeah, Sam says that, that they come in peace and they mean no harm. Interesting that, you know, oh, we, we can be friends. Nem says maybe in time. But if he's waiting around for his missus 4,000 years, it ain't going to be in time soon. <laughs> maybe that's why we didn't see him. I thought that it's a bit like the he's a bit like the furlings on the knots. Like you see the knots a couple more times, but not a lot. And you never get to see the furlings. This is the same sort of thing that alien race that you never see again. I like the fact that he also comes in with, you know, what fate HRA. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah. And off he goes. Goes back into the ocean, dive into the water, and that's it. Jack is pretty much just shaking his head thinking, what the hell happened there? I know, I like that. Back to classic Jack there. Yeah, yeah totally puzzled. You don't really know what to make of it. Especially, right, sushi. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he's terrible at times. And SG-1 return, and they start to walk towards the gate. And the episode ends. It does. Cutting away to that a shot of them walking away with a humongous planet in the background. Weird sort of sulfur vents or something. It wasn't a bad episode. I watched that again, and I enjoyed it for what it was. Yeah, same. I know. I was All I could remember was the fish man, Nim. And constant. all I could remember as well was the, the scene where Daniel was yelling that he didn't know the answers. For some reason, that really stuck in my head. Most of the rest of it, just I couldn't remember until I watched it. Yeah, it's probably not an episode I'd ever pick out just to watch if I fancied a bit of Stargate. I've got to say, you know, I didn't, didn't hate that watching that episode at all. No, it wasn't bad at all. Okay then, folks, that was Fire and Water. Next week, if everything goes according to plan, we'll be looking at Hathor. Oh, excellent. Well, I haven't got anybody to record that with me yet. Oh, hello. Looking for a volunteer? I'd be happy to join you on Hathor. Fantastic. Sorted. Okay then, thank you very much for joining me in. I know you have plans for the rest of the evening. It's alright, yeah, I'm going to go out and do a geocache. Laura and I are we're trying to do the 366 geocaches challenge, so you have to do one every single day of the year, including on a leap year. And oh, um, right. It doesn't have to be consecutively, which helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to do that. So we're currently trying to aim to go out every night to get one, which is going to get progressively harder when we've done all the ones in the local area. <laughs> it will do, yeah. It gets us out of the house. So, yeah. Okay, then, folks, if you want to get in touch with us here, our email address is stargatearchives at gmail.com. Our website is stargatearchives.com. We are on Facebook and Google+. On Twitter, we are still at the Gatecast. We uh, didn't change that handle since everybody knows us over there. If you do want to get in touch with us, I'd love to hear from you. If you want to be on the show, I'd love to hear from you. Again, my thanks to Ian for joining me this evening. Thanks, Mike. My pleasure. Excellent. Till then, though, I've been Mike. And I've been Ian. Take care. Bye-bye. See you later. <laughs>